Hey guys, Tucker here, co-host of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Before we get into this week's show, I wanted to let you know that we're currently looking for more projects. So for any of you guys that listen to the show that may be an agent or otherwise that have a property that you're looking to sell, we'd love to hear from you. Obviously, we're looking to purchase properties that are maybe not best suited for the retail market or maybe they need to be redeveloped. So we do renovations and we do new construction so we could buy an existing home that maybe it smells like cigarette smoke, maybe it hasn't been updated in decades, maybe it's got some fun functional issues, some problems like that, or maybe it's just in an area that is best suited to take the house down, partition the lot, maybe build a couple new homes, or just build one new home in its place, and anything in between. So if you guys out there in Listenerland have anything that would be best suited selling to a development company like ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to our website, which is ttmdevelopmentcompany.com, and when you go there, there's a contact us tab. Click on that, and you can send us a message, and we'll get back to you shortly thereafter. We'd love to hear from any of you guys out there that have a property like this, and hopefully we can do a deal together. This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody, welcome. This is episode 115 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are going live. Bear with us. We're four real estate guys doing tech stuff. So if it's not 100% perfect, cut us some slack, right? Uh, But we're here this week. We've got what I consider to be an awesome show because, as many of you know, I used to own a mortgage company. And Steve, of course, was very heavily in the mortgage game back in the day. Uh, A much bigger producer than myself, I should say. Just give him a little credit there. But uh, without further ado, I want to welcome my co-host to the show. And then, Steve, you can welcome our wonderful guests. Yeah, good to be back. I'm I'm looking here on Facebook trying to see if I'm live on my page. I can't tell. So, but we'll we'll share it if later if not. Um, and we we've got all our other normal channels for this anyway. Um, yeah. So I'm excited. Also, um, a, a big part of what we're seeing and feeling in the real estate world these days is um being dramatically impacted by the the goings on in the mortgage world. And and like you said, Tucker, that's not new to us. I mean, we. We were in the mortgage game back um, when we had uh, the last downturn, and we we knew what that impacted realtors. So as a realtor now and as a builder for you these days, developer, we know that what happens there um, is very, very important. So we want to chat with some, some guys um, neck deep in that world today, unlike us, who are in a little bit um, you know different segment of the business. And who can really share with us some insight as to what is happening. So welcome to the show, Zach Duncan and um, Tony Blodgett. Did I say that right? Blodgett, yep. Yep, awesome, awesome. And um, Zach Duncan, he's a good friend of mine. I've known Zach now, gosh, 11, 12 years. We worked together at Alpine Mortgage back in the day. That's where I first met him. And um, Zach is now with New American Funding. He's a branch manager in uh, Lake Oswego. They have a beautiful new office right there in Westlake. Um, actually, really close to our PPG office, just across uh, from Cruise Way from us. And then, Tony, you are the senior vice president for New American Funding. You're up in the Seattle, the greater Seattle area. 
Um, I also understand that you are a past president of the Washington Mortgage Bankers Association. So you're a guy that's got a lot of insight into um, the, the mortgage side of things. And we're excited to, to pick your brain and ask you some questions about what's going on. Um, Tucker, you had a question about the Mortgage Bankers Association. You were curious how that how that goes. Um, I thought it was a great question. I, I've made you pause it for the show. <laughs> so yeah. go ahead. Well, I mean, Tony's got some pretty let's call them uh, some pretty nice accolades um, in terms of where he falls on the on the mortgage ladder. And so I was just curious, you know, what it took to, um, I guess, being a past president of the Mortgage Bankers Association, that in itself is a big thing. Uh, but the other, I forget, what is it? The uh, It's like a, it's like a doctorate. Yeah, for mortgage game stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been really involved with the Washington Mortgage Bankers Association, which is an, a great organization and was really involved during the time that we merged together the Washington Mortgage Lenders and the Seattle Mortgage Bankers, those two organizations merged together. The Washington Mortgage Lenders always really heavy on the legislative slot side and had a lobbyist and stuff. And so as we merged those two organizations and really brought the social aspect of the Seattle Mortgage Bankers with the legislative and legal aspect of Washington Mortgage Lenders, merged those together for just a much powerful, much more powerful organization. We work closely with the Washington State uh, DFI on, on different things that are going on. And it's just a great organization to support all the mortgage bankers, both based out of Washington and uh, just in the industry in general. Uh, well, I think what you're referring to is I went through the very arduous process of getting my CMB, which is a certified mortgage banker. Uh, it's a designation that's given off by the national MBA, uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association. And it requires quite a process to obtain that, including a six hour uh, written exam on all aspects of mortgage banking, things that uh, coming up as an originator, you might not have exposure to like servicing and, and some of that, um, which is really helping me deal with the challenges that are going on today, uh, having a, a better understanding of hedging and pipelines and, and, and servicing and some of that back office stuff that your typical mortgage people just don't get exposure to. So yeah, it's a six hour written exam and then uh, you know an hour to, to two hour oral exam. And um, yeah, there's not a lot of people that go through that process. There's I think five or six active CMBs in the state of Washington. So it's um, it's not something for everybody, but it's, uh, it was a great experience. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. The MBA has been pretty active these days, hasn't it, Tony? I mean, it's, it's interesting. The same is true of us on our side, the National Association of Realtors, you, you know, during good times, they, they do, they do their things, but man, they really have to step up in these, these times. I've been hearing about the the Mortgage Bankers Association, they've been writing letters and petitioning Congress and the Fed and, and going, hey, guys, we got some problems here. So we'll get in. Uh, let's just get right into those. What are the ch current challenges facing the mortgage industry as a whole? Well, before I want to give also a shout out to David Stevens, who is the past president uh, and CEO of the MBA and was kind of in retirement. Um, he actually was the, his signatures on my plaque for my CMB and kind of, you know, has come back to the forefront and really leading the charge. Obviously, MBA is doing a lot, but David Stevens has really been active in helping to explain some of the challenges that are going on and how they're impacting mortgage bankers. So I'm interested to see if David gets back involved at a higher level with MBA or politics or something. It kind of might uh, appear that way. So you might see him speaking at different engagements if you're you know, looking for them around the industry. Awesome, awesome, good. 
Well, let's jump into it, Steve. So the mortgage industry, it's uh, it's still challenging. A little bit of headwinds these days. Um, but I guess we should say, let's let's play Zach too. So where's Zach fall on this, um, you know, spectrum here today? Like what, you're basically an, a daily originator, right, Zach? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, and that's part of the reason why we're really happy to have Tony on. I'm more of your kind of, yes, daily origination, uh, boots on the ground guy. I deal directly with a lot of real estate agents. Um, like Steve said, known him for years. Uh, we go way back. And so I've been in the industry 18 years now and um, clients and realtors, you know, th that's kind of my bread and butter. And, and I have a better kind of o overview or take on what people are seeing, what clients are seeing in relation to the mortgage industry and how that's impacting, you know, them getting pre-approved, them going out and buying homes, uh, refinancing, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit. That's a huge, you know, hot button, a hot topic right now in our country with people who are employed and are able to qualify for the low interest rates that are out there. And then, you know, Tony can kind of touch a little bit more on big picture, right? And he mentioned a couple of those things, you know, the, the things that people don't think about, you know, servicing the loans, the hedging, you know, all the things that are going on that are causing a lot of uh, mortgage companies, a lot of pain right now. And, uh, you know, it's all, all tied up together. So um, that's, that's kind of where I fit into it. And I'm sure I'll chime in as we, as we move along and talk about some of the things that impact, you know, people in, in their everyday lives as, as it comes to a mortgage. Um, and then Tony, I'd love it if you could take that first question. I think Steve had just started was, you know, Steve, what was that? Where are we? Or what's what are the, the current challenges like facing the mortgage industry? Yeah. Well, they're vast. I mean, <laughs> it, there, there's I really, it's almost hard to say where, where do we start? And let me just start, I guess, by laying a little bit of groundwork. I think what people need to realize about the mortgage industry and kind of the way that I think about it is, um, you know, there, there's a whole assembly line of a process that has to happen as it relates to manufacturing a loan. And it starts, you know, on the front end with people like Zach, who are your originator, originating that loan. And, and then it goes all the way through, um, through processing. And then, of course, underwriting. And when, then when you fund the loan, you know, there's warehouse lenders that are involved in facilitating short-term um, financing for the mortgage companies and then those loans get delivered in the secondary market and there's multiple different ways that loans might get delivered into the secondary market and so where the complexity comes in today's situation is trying to recognize first of all that every company at different spots along this assembly line might do things slightly different because there's more than one way to run a mortgage banking company and you have, you know, you have brokers, you have mortgage bankers, you have mortgage bankers that are that are selling direct to the agencies. You have mortgage bankers that are selling direct to the agencies and servicing their own loans. Uh, and then you have big banks and then you have small banks and credit unions and each of them will do things a little bit different. And so as we think about the challenges that are hitting the mortgage company, the question is, is which one do we want to focus on and which area of the assembly line is it impacting today? Um, and so... You know, I don't want to get too complex with it, but it, it can really be all over the place. So we'll start, I'll give kind of a high level. And then if you want to ask some more specific questions, we can, we can jump into it. But I think the first thing that hit everybody is, is capacity. Okay. The first challenge that came to us was in February, we started seeing what was going on in China. We realized that, you know, all of a sudden we're seeing reports that their car sales are off 95%, retail sales are off, everyone's going, whoa, like this could really impact our economy. 
And this was back in February. And so we started seeing the stock market get shaky. The bond market was really rallying, which drove down mortgage rates. And we started seeing a bunch of refinance act activity that, that came into us. So first thing that happened was boom, pipelines got huge. And then all of a sudden, you know, we just we declared a state of emergency and there was a lockdown. And then the stock market really started tanking. And what happened during that time is that you, you know, the, the the secondary market got really unstable. And the reason it got unstable is because all of a sudden the mortgage-backed securities market became a big question mark. And so typically when the stock market goes down, mortgage rates get better, right? Because people move their money into the bond market. But what, and we did see the 10 year get all the way, you know, keep pushing down, but mortgage backed securities all of a sudden lost their liquidity. There was a big concern that there would be forbearances and foreclosures. And all of a sudden, no one wanted to buy mortgage backed securities. And so what should have been naturally a great time for mortgage rates, um, all of a sudden, there was no bid. No one wanted to buy mortgage-backed securities. So that's when you saw the Fed step in, right? And because we just saw mortgage rates jump up. We were locking loans at, you know, high twos, low threes. Like, this is great. And next thing you know, they're like 5% costing a point. And it's just because there was no market anymore to purchase that. So the Fed pretty quickly stepped in and said, hey, we need to stabilize this. The Fed lowered the Fed funds rate. But that helped, but what they really said was, hey, we're going to step in and we're going to start buying mortgage-backed securities. So they're going to basically give a pledge and say, hey, we're going to be buying these assets, so don't fear, you know, go ahead and buy mortgage-backed securities. If you're worried about the stock market, put them into securities because we're going to, we're going to backstop that and make sure that there's demand for mortgage-backed securities. And so they pledged initially $200 billion. And what we saw, everyone was like, yay. And so all of a sudden, Monday morning, like rates got a lot better. But as soon as we burned through that $40 billion that they pledged that first day, the bottom dropped out again. And you saw as soon as the Fed pulled back, no one was buying mortgage-backed securities again. So then they came in and said, okay, guys, we're just going to buy as many as we need to. Like, the, you know, you know, there is no limit. Forget the $200 billion. Just kidding. We'll just keep buying them. You know what I mean? And we'll prop up that market. And then that's what you saw. And they, and they did that. But which is, a, which is out of the Great Recession playbook, right? Tony. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, this isn't, they weren't making this up as they went along. This is stuff that worked in the Great Recession and brought rates down and, and, and propped up the market. So they're, they're probably thinking, hey, we know this, we can do this. And, but then there was a surprise that came. So keep going. Yeah. So, so what happened was, and you're absolutely right, quantitative easing is what they called it in the last recession. They pulled out that playbook and it worked, but it, it almost, it almost worked too good. So what they did is they started buying mortgage backed securities, but they were buying too many. And so what happened is, as I told you, the first thing that happened was we ramped up, we ramped up production, right? Well, everyone had these huge full pipelines. And then as the Fed started buying, when, when you take in a lock for a borrower, and a little, little, little digress, you got to understand this. When, when a borrower locks in their interest rate, the lender doesn't technically lock in that rate. What they do is they guarantee that rate to your borrower, but they take out a position that is basically a put against mortgage-backed securities. It's basically a, an instrument that they purchase that goes in inverse of mortgage-backed securities. So if rates get better, they're they're covered, and if rates get worse, they're covered either way. Okay, so all these locks came in in February. Everyone's putting on their locks, taking out their hedge position, and then the Fed trying to fix this whipsaw that was going on, starts buying, 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 buying. Well, they drove up the price so high that this instrument that we all invest in to hedge our pipelines 
got so far underwater because they were over-purchasing mortgage-backed securities that now these lenders had margin calls against these hedge positions. And so now, so now you start realizing, okay, there's this big assembly line and there's certain parts that you can have failure. This hedging issue, this margin call issue is just one point of failure and it impacted those lenders that didn't have enough cash on hand to cover their margin calls. And so if you can imagine, we have on one end, we're taking in these huge pipelines, right? So there's some capacity issues there just operationally. We also have to fund these loans. So we need warehouse lines to, to provide short-term financing so we can fund these loans and deliver them into the secondary market. And then we have, and you have to, by the way, have pledged assets in order to have warehouse lines. And typically you only maintain a warehouse line that's a, an amount sufficient to fund your normal lines with a little bit of flexibility. What we call a bulge uh, is available. But if, if you have too much volume, you don't have the warehouse capacity to fund it. You need to go get more capacity. Well, that requires you to pledge additional assets. While over here, you're, you're hemorrhaging cash because you're covering your margin calls. Now you're not losing that money. Like those loans are eventually gonna fund. But in the meantime, your broker dealers saying, hey, you're underwater way too far on this hedge. Just insurance you took out on your pipeline, it's, it's taken on too many hits and we need to shore that up with cash. And so you're just being pulled for cash in all these different directions. And that's really what caused that initial real freak out. And then the question is, is how's your company structured and how much did all of those things I just threw out and there, there's more, but I don't want to just completely overwhelm people with the complexity of this, but as all those things started hitting, how's your company structured and how did they impact you? I mean, what was your cash position heading into this? How much liquidity did you already have? Do you, you know, do you even hedge your pipeline or do you sell best efforts to an aggregator and they hedge the pipeline so they're having the issues? Or are you a broker and you're just dealing with the different lenders that you happen to do business with you're not hedging your pipeline at all as a broker but somebody down down the down the food chain if you will is and who are your counterparties that you're set up to do business with and how are they weathering this onset of storms so i'll take a pause there because i know i just dumped a lot on you guys yeah. but it's complex man it's uh, there's a lot to it well and then and then it got worse right then the forbearance yeah. thing happened right i mean like, I think that was bad enough. And I saw some panic um, from the MBA and there was letters written to the Fed going, whoa, whoa, whoa. We know you, you mean well by buying the mortgage-backed securities, but you're actually causing an unintended consequence. So that was that was already bad. But then from what my understanding, things got even far worse because then all of a sudden Congress, again, and in, in their good intentions – said hey this this virus is big everyone has to stay home jobs are being impacted let's give relief to homeowners so let's come up with a program where everybody can call their mortgage company and skip some payments and oh by the way let's make it really easy they don't have to prove they lost their job they just need to make a quick phone call well in that one stroke they took away the mortgage industry's number one asset right? Which is belief that in the system that they'll get their money back in the form of payments, right? And so that caused a whole new wake of issues, right? 
Yeah, a hundred percent. So, you know, you know, look, I don't think that anyone can do a good job in today's market of explaining this whole forbearance thing because it's extremely complicated because there's always been a forbearance program, but now we're talking about a forbearance as illustrated in the care act. Okay. It's different. It's different rules. Right. And so it's all a forbearance, but everyone's talking about forbearances. Like here's how they work. Well, look, we don't know how they work because they, because we've never had forbearances mandated by Congress before. So this is a completely unprecedented thing. So you have a lot of people talking about, well, here's what I think this means based on old rules of what forbearances are. And I think we need to be really careful here about this. And I think that myself included, um, we have to be very careful on how we message out what people should be doing if they need a forbearance on their mortgage. And um, so that's one aspect of this, I think, Steve, is just the messaging around this forbearance. I think the media did a horrible job. And I think the number one thing that Congress got wrong in this thing is they did not require that you prove hardship to get a forbearance. Now, in the last downturn, there was a lot of grace given for people that were impacted, but you had to show hardship. The biggest miss on this one is all you really have to do is call up and say, hey, I've been impacted. I, I need a forbearance. I need to skip some payments. And that is the problem. That is the biggest problem, in my opinion, is that they didn't put a qualifier in there that you have to prove some hardship. And, they, and then you have media, just people talking on the news, just basically who have no idea what they're talking about, saying, yeah, just, you know, I actually saw one guy say, you know what? Even if you don't need it, just call up, get a forbearance, kind of have it there waiting for you. And yeah, if you choose not to make your payments, don't make your payments. And that way they can't show you as a late payment. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is this is something that people should only do if they need it, right? And it just was not proposed that way in the media. And so, yes, to your point, it caused a whole nother set of issues, which is everybody calling their servicer to get a forbearance. Now keep in mind, you guys, servicers typically are mailing out payments or sending out e-payments. They're not staffed to deal with half of the people they're servicing for, calling them on the phone, asking about this forbearance and how it works and what are my options and, and so on and so forth. And so what a lot of people did, like to your point, is just put on their website, like click here for a forbearance. And it scares the crap out of everybody when they realize what happens. So let's talk a little bit, if I can, about this forbearance thing, it impacts different lenders differently depending on how they do. Again, it's back to how do you do business, you know? And I think there's a couple things that people need to, to, to understand. So let's first talk about government loans, okay? So Fannie, or excuse me, FHA, VA, and USDA loans. Um, they're all insured by the government and they're all sold. They're not sold to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're sold into Ginny Mae. And they're securitized and they're insured, they're guaranteed by the government. And they're serviced differently. And the there is a remittance type. And what, what remittance means is when you get your mortgage payment from the borrower, okay, the borrower makes your payment. On government loans, you have to advance that payment to the investor, regardless of whether the borrower pays you or not. So as you can imagine, if a borrower goes into foreclosure, misses their payments, or even an, an agreed upon forbearance, 
there's still the need for the servicer to advance those payments, even though the borrower is not making their payment. So it's why government loans suddenly became very challenging. Yes. Because all of a sudden, if you if you fund a government loan, and, and by the way, Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, but the forbearance rules never said only loans that have been around for six months or a year. I mean, in theory, somebody could literally close a loan with Zach in March and in April go, hey, I want a forbearance, right? I mean, was there any rules stipulating how long the loan had to be out there? I don't believe so, but let's let's talk about what happened in government loans, Steve, because you're on to something here. Yeah. What, what, so what happened was, so understanding the remittance type first, right? Okay, so what's the concern? The concern is, if, if, and I'm going to get into the Fannie Freddie stuff in a second because that's important too. But on the government stuff, what happens is, is that they have to advance these payments. So here's what, here's what really caused the problem to all of you in the real estate industry and mortgage industry. What I'm telling you isn't the problem. The problem was... The biggest purchasers of government secured mortgage-backed securities said, whoa, I'm out. Like, I don't know what that's going to mean. And so your Lakeviews and your Freedoms and your, your companies who bought the bulk of these are all of a sudden out of the game. So what does that mean? Well, again, back to how's your company structured? Well, if, if you're pooling your loans and you're selling them to someone like Lakeview, that's a problem because the they're gone now. They're not buying loans anymore. Now, if you are a seller servicer, if you're a company who sells your loans to Ginny Mae and you service them, yeah, your servicing value went to zero, but you can still make the decision that I'm still going to fund these loans. I'm not going to add a bunch of overlays. The servicing value will come back. I'm not looking. It's kind of like I don't need to sell it today, so it's not that big of a deal because I'm going to service it. And so you see a whole band of lenders that – are going, hey, this hasn't been that big of a deal for us. And people go, well, why? And they go, and it's not that they haven't added some overlays because everyone has added something, let's, let's be honest. But some companies have fared better. And, and I almost want to say, I don't want to say it's luck. It's just how they're structured is less impacted by this, this particular set of circumstances that's happening in our industry. And so you can see that amongst, you know, amongst different companies out there. And it's the ones that seem to be selling the loans direct to the agency and retaining the servicing and willing to say, you know what, I know there's no value in this, but I'm going to take it anyway. And I'll either sell it later or I will once the value come back or I, I had no intention on selling it. And once the servicing stabilizes, they'll reevaluate it. So and then you had some companies who were selling loans before. And then they said, you know what, that market is is trash, but we have the ability to pivot. And now we're going to start retaining our servicing. It's not our long game. It's not what we want to do, but we're going to do it for now so that we can offer some government financing so that we can have some decent pricing. And then once it settles out, you know, we have a balance sheet and we have finance financial uh, strength behind us. We can afford to do this for a while and we'll deal with it later. And some other companies are just simply bound by whoever it is they deliver loans to in the secondary market. And if that market's either gone or because of so many options are gone, those options that are remaining have really priced themselves out of the market, then that's what you're seeing. And so Tony, and, 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 and you guys, uh, new American funding, you guys are a servicer. And so you guys have weathered this a lot better than others. I, I know that for a fact when conversations I've had with Zach, um, but you guys are now taking that risk, right? If you guys fund a government loan and the next month that person applies for forbearance, you guys are now making the payment to Ginny May, right? 
Yeah, and I don't, I'm going to be careful here getting into the subtleties of this, but it's not as big of an issue on government loans. Um, really, if, if the borrower, once we fund the loan and get the loan insured and it's insured by FHA, if the borrower, Jenny May does not say that if a borrower misses their first, that it's a, they don't look at it as a default, I guess is, is the way, is my understanding. Let me just clarify. It's my understanding that they're not on Jenny May loans. They're saying that if you if you grant the borrower forbearance, we're not seeing that as a late payment. We're not. There's no late. There's no fees. There's no penalties, etc. Right. And so you're not. It's not like you're you're risking not getting that loan necessarily insured by the agency. Where the issue is is so yes, we are taking the risk that they're going to forbear on that, and we have to forward forward those payments. And let's talk about again. Sorry to be so complicated here, but so the good news is is Jenny May has come out and put a, HUD has put a facility in place to provide liquidity to the Ginny May servicing market. So if you're a servicer of Ginny Mays, about a week and a half ago, they came out and said, we, we're going to provide liquidity. So if you can't advance all those payments, right, if you have all these forbearances happen and you can't advance those payments to the investors, we're going to insure the investors in Ginny May securities that we're always here to back it up. So we're going to put a credit facility in place that's a pass-through of those payments. Okay, so if you're a Ginny May servicer, you got protection. It's it's kind of a last resort protection, but it's still a protection nonetheless. That happened a week and a half ago, Tony. Yeah, that was that was big, right? It was huge. But you know who hasn't done that? It's Fannie and Freddie. Yeah, the the FHFA who um, regulate Fannie and Freddie, Mark Calabria, Mark Calabria, is that his name? They have not done it yet. And I got to be honest with you, I, you know, they don't really like non-bank independent mortgage banking firms at service like ours, but there's big ones like Quicken, right? I mean, and so they don't like it. And so they're, I think if they've had it their way, the Chase, Wells and B of A would do every mortgage in the, in the country. Right. And so as of right now, they have not really put a facility in place that's going to backstop servicers. Now let's talk about this for a second. It, Cause I think it's it, now I talked about Ginny May and how, if you take in the payment, you have to advance it. Okay. That's called, that's called scheduled schedule. That means you have to make the scheduled payment to the investor regardless. It's part of the reason why the, you, there's more, there's more value in government loans. It's part of the reason why there's more value in the servicing of government loans. If you're a servicer, but there's more risk because you have to, it's an actual, it's a scheduled schedule remittance type. Now, Fannie Freddie, it's negotiable. Not everybody is scheduled scheduled. Some are actual, actual, some are scheduled. It depends on what you've negotiated with the agencies. And there's some benefits, as you would imagine, just like there is to government loans. If you agree on Fannie and Freddie to, to do a remittance type of scheduled, there's some benefits to you. I don't know exactly what they are. I'm not an expert per se at servicing, but you get to hold the loan a little bit longer. You can make some extra money. I don't know all the ins and outs of it. Bottom line, it's more profitable to you. You get a few more basis points on that deal, but the borrower doesn't pay. You have to advance, right? Just mm-hmm. like on the government loans. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, we, we've been a seller servicer of both Ginny May and Fannie and Freddie since 2012. And when we set up our servicing, um, we negotiated 
for an actual, actual remittance type. So whatever the borrower actually pays is what we actually have to advance. It's called actual, actual. And that's the remittance type that our company has with the agencies. And I'm sure there's many other lenders who also so have that same type of remittance structure. So you're in a better However, position for forbearance then? What's that? You're in a better position for forbearance then. Way if better. they don't pay you, you're not required to pass that on. That's correct. And that's, and this is important because everyone's out there talking like, oh, if you're a servicer, you're screwed. It's like, well, if you're a servicer and you don't, and you, and you have a scheduled remittance type and you don't have a ton of reserves and 25% of your people going to forbearance, yes, you're screwed. <laughs> unless, unless the Mark, you know, Calabria and the FHFA put a facility in place like, Jenny May did, which hasn't happened yet. There's a lot of pressure on them to do that. This is one of the things you talked about. What is the NBA doing? The NBA is pushing hard on Calabria to, to, to put this in place. It's, it's really brazen not to do it. And it's almost like, hey, you know, we thought there might be an issue with you mortgage bankers not having enough liquidity. So we're going to prove it to you. And I hope that that's not the case because as much as, you know, Quicken is not my favorite lender, but companies like Quicken and other large Large lenders, you know, independent mortgage bankers, they do have the, the a scheduled remittance type with the agencies, and they have to advance those payments. And it could potentially take companies like that, Penny Mac. And again, you guys, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I don't work for any of those companies. I'm not representing. I'm just telling you conceptually. There's a lot of big companies that have the need to advance payments, even on loans and forbearance, but not all companies do. So as you can see. Depending on your situation, you might be a little less panicked right now about what's going on um, due to those factors. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that was interesting. That's, that's a great explanation, by the way. That was probably, of all the articles I've read, because I've tried to wrap my head around this, I think I now finally understand it. So I know it's complex, but that was a good explanation. <laughs> yeah. And um, let's talk specifically. I think you gave us a good um, a good overview. We call that, you're, you guys are a correspondent lender, right? Which I mean, isn't that what it, I'm saying it wrong. What, what do you guys call yourselves where you, you fund it on your warehouse line and sell it? What's that called? Yeah. So, so you could be a correspondent lender and do that, right? It just depends on where you're selling it to. So a correspondent lender is someone who um, usually will underwrite the loan. So they have delegated underwriting authority to underwrite the loan. Sometimes they don't, but most of the time they do like a mini core. If you've heard of mini core, a mini core is where you don't have underwriting authority, you know? So anyway, so you, you process, you underwrite the loan, and then you fund the loan. You use the warehouse funds to fund the loan, and then you turn around and you sell it to a correspondent lender. You sell it to oh. Mac, Wells Fargo, Chase, someone Got like it. that Got in the it. secondary market. That's correspondent. What we do is is we're a seller servicer. So what we do is we, we underwrite the loan, and then we sell it directly to the agencies uh, and then we retain the servicing ourselves on, on almost all of the loans that we do. Now, there is one distinct advantage of this situation in today's market that is impacting real estate agents and loan officers today, which is the whole issue with verifications of employment and the risk of a borrower, as you mentioned earlier, Steve, the risk of a borrower asking for a forbearance before the loan is purchased by Fannie and Freddie. So one of the advantages, and I can only speak to what I know about new American funding, so I'm sure there's other companies that are also benefiting from this type of structure, but one of the benefits of selling those loans directly is how quickly it happens. 
So we fund a loan and we sell it to Fannie Mae and they, it's purchased within say 10 days, okay? So that loan's purchased. The borrower is not gonna ask in most cases for a forbearance inside of 10 days. They haven't even got their, their servicing letter yet about their first mortgage payment. And so the likelihood of them asking for a forbearance is very low. But let's talk about, it. let's say I did loans correspondent to your point, right? So I fund the loan, I sell it to ABC correspondent lender. They're an aggregator. They're going to bulk all their loans together. So this takes time. First of all, they're busy. So it takes a long time for them to purchase my loan. Maybe it sits on my warehouse line for normally it's, you know, seven to eight days. Maybe it's 10, 15, maybe it's 25 days. I mean, it depends on who you're selling that loan to, right? So not all correspondents are slow, but look, we talked about there's capacity issues. So if they're slow to purchase that loan and then they bulk their loans together before they sell them to Fannie Mae, look, that could take a long time. I don't know, on 45 days on the outset, right? Or something like that. They may, may even you know, do an interim payment collection before it goes to Fannie Mae, who knows? So the concern there is now there's this big, long time between the time that the loan funds and it actually gets purchased by Fannie Mae where it may not be eligible for purchase if the borrower doesn't make their first payment, which if they ask for a forbearance, it's not going to be eligible for purchase is the current kind of understanding. And so this time between when it funds and when it gets finally delivered is important. And if you're selling direct to the agency and retaining the servicing, you really shorten that window. And the likelihood of something going wrong during that time is greatly diminished just simply due to how that kind of structure works. It also allows you to turn your warehouse line a little bit faster. And so what happens is, is when you have a warehouse line, and let's say you normally fund, just make it up 100 million a month, and you, you fund $100 million a month, you can normally do that with about $50 million because you fund your loans and then you sell them, you get them repurchased within 10 days, you have that money back available, so you can you know turn that loan, turn that line, let's say, twice, right? So all of a sudden, no problem. I got a $50 million line, I can do $100 million, cool. But yeah. if you're selling those loans correspondent and those particular investors that you happen to sell to are slow at purchasing loans, all of a sudden, what used to take 10 days is now taking 20 days. Well, now I can only turn my line one and a quarter times or maybe one and a half times. My funding capacity went from 100 million to 75 million. While I have massive amounts of volume coming down the pipeline, I'm staring down the barrel of the least amount of funding capacity that I've ever had. And so how do you stop how do you stop the, the flow? Well, price is the rate. <laughs> add overlays, you know, drop programs. You just start, right? And so, look, you have to stop the volume. I mean, if you can't fund loans, you got to find a way to put the brakes on it. And so the natural ways that banks and mortgage companies apply the brakes is overlays and high credit scores and dropping certain product. And they start with the riskier stuff first. Why wouldn't they? And so, again, it goes back to, you know, some companies are going to do better because turning that line fast in this in particular set of circumstances is super important, you know? Yeah. Tony. Okay. Thank you for that. And most of the lenders that we as realtors deal with on a day in and day out basis, most of every, every realtor has their preferred lenders, right? Most of them are, are structured similar to what we're talking about. Um, you know, your director's mortgages, your fairways, um, your, um, uh, prime lending, they, 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 they have their in-house operations. They, they, 
fund it on a warehouse line and then they do something. Now, what they do on the back end, like you're saying, is a little different. You guys retain it. You sell straight to the agency. A lot of them are selling to correspondent lenders. I want to talk about two other channels because they are greatly impacted. The two other channels that I want to talk about, the big banks, we'll talk about that real quick because we're hearing a lot about them. Chase has come out with some major changes recently. And then the pure brokers, okay? We've seen in the last few years a resurgence of the pure broker. Pure broker was something that when Tucker and I got in the industry, probably Zach too, back in 03, it was huge. Anybody could could just about be a pure broker. What you do is you'd go find an office, retail space, you you'd have, you you know there's some licensing components to it and you basically would would get loans and send them off to some some wholesale bank that would underwrite it fund it do it and and those wholesale banks were wooing you and you know they're all trying to get your business and and life was good when we went through the downturn that business model all but broke and got really shaky i feel elements of that happening again today do you want to talk about that a little bit, Tony? I mean, what are you, what are you hearing out there with that? And by the way, yeah. it came back, but now it's, it's, I'm feeling some challenges there. Yeah. Well, so you're spot on everything you said. I totally agree. Right. But that's what happened. I mean, uh, mortgage brokers did about 62% of loans prior to the crash and it dropped all the way down to, I think less than 10%, I believe. And look, there's always been brokers and there's some brokers that have been around for the last 20 years and they're phenomenal people and they understand how to navigate that world. It is a different world, um, but it, it can be good if you know what you're doing and you run your business professionally. Um, I think that there's definitely been a resurgence. And I think the reason for that is a couple different things. One, people like to have options. And so when you have a broker, you have all these different wholesale lenders that you can send your loan to. And so it gives you this, this idea that, hey, I got lots of options. Um, without getting too much into it, I also think that there was some cracks in, uh, in, 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 in how people could manipulate uh, loan officer compensation rules. And so some people, some uh, you know, not all people, but some people went to that channel because it allowed them, them to kind of circumnavigate some of the LO comp rules that some of your larger um, mortgage banking firms have large compliance departments, and they really cramp down on um, on the, you know and, and are adhering to the Dodd Frank changes of 2010. And I think it got a little wild west in the mortgage broker world. I don't I don't want daggers thrown at me. I'm not saying everyone's like that. I'm just saying that in, in a much less regulated environment with the administration we currently have and the the kind of Things scaling back of the CFPB, I think it allowed people to feel like they could be a little more brazen and that attracted people to that model. So there's some different reasons why I think it had a resurgence um, and pricing. I mean, they're very aggressive in their price. And the reason for that is a couple of reasons. One, they're capped. It's, it's unfair. I think it's an unfair advantage that mortgage bankers have is that mortgage brokers, because of the points and fees rules that were implemented during Dodd-Frank, they're capped at how much they can make. And so you know, partly to a consumer, you go, well, great. I don't want a guy making a bunch of money on me anyway, but it does give you lower rates in the event the wholesalers are offering low rates, right? Yeah, so, because yeah. you're capped on how much margin you can, yeah. you can build in there. So that was attractive to people. I don't know that everyone understood why the rates were better, but they were just like, hey, what do I care? I can make money and give a better rate. And that makes my job easier as a loan officer. So that's awesome. The drawbacks of, of brokering are, have always been the same, which is that, you know, you don't have as much control 
over it. And I think a broker would argue, well, yeah, we do. We just we, we just don't work with the lenders who don't give us good service. And we only work with the ones that give us great service. And so therefore, I have ultimate control. And yeah, there's there's some truth to that. When times um, are good. It, but, it is, but it is different than walking down the hallway talking to an underwriter. I mean, let's be honest. There's, yeah. it's, it's different yeah. than that. I mean, it's a more stressful game going that yeah. way. There's no question having done it and Steve having done it as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so, so here's what's happened today, though. So, yeah. so what's happened today is that there was also a price war okay so so at, you got to think about this if you're a united wholesale mortgage or some of these other companies really looking to pick up market share the last 18 months was the time to be super aggressive on price because you have this big migration of loan officers moving from mortgage bankers and moving from banks to the broker world and you want to be their new daddy right and so you want to grab that market share during the migration. And that's what you saw wholesale lenders do is get really aggressive on their price. And they've made up the bulk of their revenue through what are called spec pool payups is, is part of it and, um, and, and loan level price adjustments. Right. And so do you guys know what, do you know, what a spec pool payup? Maybe give us a quick uh, rundown of what it is. So we yeah. Can... So what, what happens is, is that when you sell, so, when people are buying security, buying mortgage-backed securities, there's certain groups of them that are worth more money, right? So essentially, if you have a lower loan amount, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Is less likely to refinance if rates dip than a loan, say, for instance, with a $400,000 loan amount. Because in order for me to improve your situation on your $180,000 loan, I got to move rates by about a point and a half versus yeah. 75, you know, um, on a $400,000 loan for it to make sense. And so investors pay more for those particular specs. They're called specific pools. So what happens is, is right now, who's buying mortgage-backed securities? The government. And they don't care about your specific pools. They just buy whatever. And so all of a sudden, the payup went away for that. And so that's a band where a lot of these wholesalers and mortgage bankers, quite frankly, were picking up a lot of additional revenue was in these spec pool payups. But these wholesale lenders in particular, who were really trying to get aggressive, were using that as like their profit margin so they could have rock bottom prices. Well, when that goes away, you all of a sudden have to build margin in. And now all of a sudden you have wholesale lenders with retail rates and all of a sudden advantage and you're capped at how much you can make. And so that's part of what you saw happen in the wholesale market. And then the other thing is just simply, again, it goes back to how is that company, the wholesale company, how are they structured? Are they servicing loans? What's their warehouse line capacity? How hard did they get hit by margin calls? The same things that I just talked about, they just happen one layer removed from the mortgage broker. So the mortgage broker is sitting there going, okay, I got 50 different lenders that I do loans to. Some only have 10, some have 50, some have 200. But you know, do I have relationships with lenders who have navigated this well? And unfortunately, some of the number one wholesale lenders, I don't know all the specifics and I don't, I don't want to hypothesize, but they had challenges and they priced themselves out of the market. And so now all of a sudden, if you're a broker, you're like, hey, this go-to place that I love their service, I loved everything about them, and they had the best price in town, now their price is way out of the market. And if I want to get aggressive on price, I have to shift and work with a lender who I'm not as familiar with just to be competitive. But now I don't have the same relationships. I don't have the same confidence of service there. And so you're seeing some breaks down in service. And again, not at all a rag on mortgage brokers. I have a lot of friends that are mortgage brokers. It can be a great channel. But in this environment, 
I think that it's become a lot more difficult to navigate. And some of those perceived benefits that you saw in the last 18 months, which allowed a lot of people to migrate to that channel, yeah, some of those may be looking like maybe they're not as good as they were, but they might come back too, right? It just yeah, no, and and we're not we're not doing this rag. I think what we're doing is we're showing the various the various channels all have different challenges, right? Here's the good news for a pure broker: you never have you, you or you re you really can't have the warehouse line issues because you don't have warehouse lines, but they have other issues. The other thing I want to touch on, Tony, that I I'm seeing and hearing now, and it reminds me a lot of the the Great Recession with the challenges that happened to the pure broker is there's this element of distrust a little bit when markets get ugly um there's not the the, the faith in each other that that somebody like zach has with his company right because if zach if zach's putting loans that are that aren't going to perform well into new american funding he he's he's hurting himself like it's only a matter of time he knows this is my company with with um, pure brokers, there's kind of a wall there, right? Hey, like this this loan, oh, that didn't perform well. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go put another one over here. Um, and, and that works both ways. The other element of distrust, and this is bad for the loan officer, is we've seen wholesale banks turn programs off overnight and not care about the loan officer, right? You know, hey, we've got this great program and here's the credit score requirements, blah, blah, blah. Zach runs out. He's got a fire. He's they're pre-approved for shopping with a realtor. They make an offer. They come back. They go, okay, Zach, we're in escrow. We're closing 30 days. Zach's not a wholesale, but but you know what I'm saying. I'm talking about a loan officer in, in a pure home. They go to that bank and they go, okay, we want to lock this loan. They go, no, 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 no. We just changed our guidelines and sorry, we're not honoring anything. We don't care what your problems are over there. We've right, Steve, or, or even worse, they go to that wholesale lender or that you know they're they're brokering to that place. They get a week out from the close date. All conditions are in. All parties are looking to fund. And all of a sudden they shut that down and they yeah. won't fund that loan. Yeah. Or I've even heard horror stories of not really being given an explanation why we're not going to fund this loan, but we're not prepared to fund on your close date. And then they fund, you know, two, three, five business days later with no real explanation. And so in the, you know, in that, in that you put your, your buyer in that position. And then all of a sudden, what do you do? What's your, how do you pivot? Well, you go back to another bank. <laughs> it's almost like you're starting the process over again, right? Yeah. And yeah. you know better than anybody, you got, you know, tons of dominoes. It's just not usually a buyer and a seller. I mean, in this market right now, I don't know, you, you correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like most of my buyers are selling their home to buy something else. And so when they're doing that, the person on the other end is doing that. You know, I have transactions where there's, what we call dominoes, right? There's six yeah. dominoes. And if, if all of a sudden you can't fund and you're, you're not told why, I mean, that could put you in a really difficult position. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, let's just touch real quickly. I, so those are some of the challenges with the peer broker. What's going on with the big banks, Tony? I mean, why, why are they, um, why is Chase raising their minimum credit score to 700 and you got to have 20% down? That's, that's, that's going to, that's the hot question. That's the that's the big headline. So we'll, we'll lob that one over to you. See well, what you can say about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a combination. First of all, Chase in particular. You know, I think Jamie Dimon is is um, you know down on what's what the economy looks like. I mean, he's just being conservative, and I think he's made that pretty clear that he thinks it's going to be brutal. He doesn't want any part of it. You know. But the other reason is 
banks have a couple things. First of all, they're way more concerned about reputational risk. And so they, you know, they want to be careful um, not to put themselves or their shareholders or anybody at risk. And so they're just much more risk adverse. The other thing with the banks is they just don't have capacity, you guys. They've been so beat up over the last number of years with so much of the business going to the independent mortgage banker. And now, of course, with the broker, they just have lost so much of their infrastructure on the mortgage side that they just they just need to take care of the people they have. And I think that's really a big part of it is that they have so such a big book of business that needs to get rewritten. That needs to, you know, they have so many loans that need to get the rates down and they need to be able to get through those and rewrite their servicing portfolio so it doesn't bleed off and go away. And so they truly, I think it is a resource thing that they just need to focus on the low hanging fruit and get as much of their book rewritten as they can with the infrastructure and capacity that they have. I think that's a big part of what you're seeing, seeing with the big banks and just their overall propensity towards being a bit more um, risk adverse. Uh, you put those two things together and you have what you have now. This I, this thing with Chase, I don't know if you guys realize this, but you know Chase is not doing any loans under 700 FICO score. Well, that's not just in their retail channel. That's, that's on their warehouse lending as well. So if you're a mortgage bank, we need to even get into really all the challenges of warehouse lending. But if you're a mortgage banking firm and one of your main warehouse facilities is Chase and they're not allowing you to deliver loans using that part, because most companies have multiple warehouse lines. It's not like you're like, you know, beholden to one, but Chase is a big one. JP, you know, so if you're with JP and, and, and they they say no, nothing under 700. Well, you might be looking at your overall book of business and all of a sudden you have to start putting overlays in place because you can't have too much business that you can't use that line for. And, and maybe your other lines are backed up a little bit. Again, we talked about the challenges of delivering into the secondary market. How about this? How about loans that you funded that were jumbo loans and the investor stopped purchasing them or they were non-QM loans, they're on your warehouse line and no one's buying them. Right now, you are either scrambling to figure out what to do with that, you've already had to scratch and dent that loan, or it's sitting there dwelling on your warehouse line, lowering your overall capacity, while at the same time, someone like Chase, if they're one of your counterparties and they lower their FICO score requirements, all of a sudden, you got the squeeze. And so some of what you're seeing happening in the mortgage banking world is because of what's happened with counterparties and Chase is impacting mortgage bankers through their warehouse facility and uh, I personally think it's unfortunate that Chase is taking the stance they have. You know, why do you want to be lead, you know, why do you want to be leading that during a time when our country needs access to credit more than ever? They need access to the equity in their homes and you're making it more difficult in a very difficult situation. So I'm not a huge fan of what Chase is doing right now. And I'm not really afraid to say it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I got a I mean, question it, real it, quick, Steve. So. Yeah. The guys that did fund jumbo stuff, right, or the non-QM stuff that maybe didn't get it sold, what do they do? They pass on to a scratch and dent market. Somebody buys it at a, basically a you know a discount, and I assume there's some discount buyers out there, and that's their business model. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, and that's the problem. It's a supply and demand thing, right? So, so when there's a lot, when there's a lot of scratch and dent available, the bid goes way down. I mean, I don't have any specific numbers. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if people had to unload some stuff at meh, 70 cents in the dollar, maybe less. I don't know. I mean, you know, hopefully not. Hopefully, I mean, look, I don't think that 85, 90 is bad enough. You got millions of dollars with the loans that you're selling at 90% of their value. That 
that's that's brutal that's brutal um yeah so yeah um and and and, and for, to our listeners who are realtors i mean that a 700 credit score is a pretty darn good credit score right i mean you know 720 is great credit and you get above 750 or excellent excellent credit but 700 is not average i mean i think the average credit score isn't it in the 670 range isn't that what they say is like average so 700 is above average credit so for chase to say we want only above average buyers and oh by the way they also better have 20 percent down your buyer pool out there just shrunk tremendously i mean if 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 two months ago we were at a you know a buyer pool is a hundred i mean you got to think from chase's perspective they're now only looking at 60% of that same buyer pool, which means if you have 10 houses that had buyers before, now you have six, now six of those houses have buyers and, and four of them are going to sit. Um, let's keep moving along. Cause I know, I know we want to, we want to get through some of these other great questions. Cause I know you're going to have great answers, Tony talk about jumbo. What the heck is going on with jumbo that impacts Tucker a lot. Um, I do some high end stuff. Um, we're, we're seeing a slowdown there. That's, that's a little unique. What's going on with jumbo financing. So I think the first thing you can understand about Jumbo is that it really isn't a secondary market. And so I think that's where people need to realize that every just, it's always been the challenge with Jumbo is that every lender that offers a Jumbo product, it's a portfolio product that they're, they're, they're setting the guidelines and they're retaining them. So there's no like set rules with Jumbo because each investor has their own level of risk that they're willing to take. And so there was a handful of jumbo lenders who were doing some of your fringe and, and over non-QM. Non-QM QM lenders also did some of your higher-risk, I'd say, jumbo loans. And so, yeah, just, I mean, it's a market that has no liquidity in the secondary market. So the challenges are even more exacerbated by what's been happening. And then what you see is the big banks who are the players, the wells, the chase, etc. I mean, Wells, you guys, is out of jumbo lending in the correspondent world. So most of us had Wells as an outlet to sell our jumbo loans to. If you were an independent mortgage bank or a broker, that wholesale and correspondent channel is gone. And you have to have a 250000 My understanding is you have to have a $250,000 deposit at Wells Fargo to do a jumbo loan with them. Um, that's brutal. And then what happens is again, supply and demand, right? So all the options go away. You're left with a handful of jumbo lenders. They know they're the only game in town and margin goes up and overlays go in place. They only want the low hanging fruit. They can only take so much capacity. And what did we talk about earlier? How do you slow down capacity? Add overlays, increase your rates. And that's what's happening in the jumbo market is less options. And with Wells pulling out of correspondent, Man, here's everything you see. Think about it from a mortgage banker's standpoint. Now, Wells going away, we still have five other or six other jumbo investors. We have a few relationships that are unique to us. It's not just us, but only a handful of companies are working with certain investors. So we didn't really change anything with jumbo. But what if, what if Wells was your main delivery for jumbo loans and you only had one or two that you used as a backup? Well, all of a sudden, if you're an independent mortgage banker and you just lost your number one source for who you would do that loan with on a correspondent level, you might say, look, I'm not going to rely on these other two. They were just my backup to Wells. And now Wells is gone. Look, I'm out of jumbo. And so you have some independent mortgage bankers fully stepping away 
from Jumbo and or stepping back and taking a pause while they try to find some other good counterparties to establish relationships with. Yeah. And then I think you'll see them kind of re-enter. So I think the good news about Jumbo, this might be kind of a step back, reassess who wants to be in this world, and then realign your relationships. If you're a broker and you don't have good relationships, get those established. If you're an independent mortgage banker. You got to find new companies that you're going to do correspondent business with. And we'll see it kind of get a little bit better. But yeah, it's a big step back from jumbo. Right and I also think you're going to see a resurgence and I already am of people who are, you know, within a hundred thousand dollars of a conforming loan limit and have the down for a jumbo. The second mortgage, you know, these home equity line of credits, second mortgages, getting creative on, on how to, you know, still get into the property. And then like Tony just said, you know, at some point, Things will, I mean, we may never go back to the way things were, you know, several months ago, but things will settle down. Investors will come back, you know, and then if you need to look at a, you know, rate term refinance, pay that second off down the road, but it gives people an opportunity to still get into a home um, without going, oh my God, now I need, you know, 25% down in my rate, even with an 800 credit score is 4% where it was three and a quarter, you know, four months ago. So I think we'll see a, a rise in the number of second mortgages concurrent with a first mortgage like we did, Steve, you know, you probably remember back in the day, right? It was pretty common to go to, you know, 90% or even 80% with a second. So I think that yeah. we'll see a lot more of that. So people yeah. can do like a 65, 15 or something like that, exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and just, just to touch on what you said, Tony, the government doesn't buy anything jump, correct? And that never changed in the last downturn which was also a, a time period when Jumbo really went away, right? Yeah, the, the government does buy high balance loans, which in Portland isn't really a thing, but in other markets it, it is. Like in Seattle, you know, they, they buy high balance loans. I think that they would rather not, um, but they do it in high cost areas. And it's a challenge to market also. High balance is, is a challenge because as when you sell your loans to the agencies, you can only have 10% of your total loans be high balance. And it's difficult in a refinance market like this because what happens is, is that like we talked about a minute ago, uh, the higher loan amounts can benefit from a very small improvement in interest rate. And so higher loan amounts are refinancing more, the high balance loans are refinancing more. And so it's throwing off those ratios and so as a result, rates are going up on high balance loans as well, unfortunately, to try to slow down, um, uh, you know, the, the onslaught of, of high balance loans. So, yeah, the only government intervention is high balance um, right now. And that's yeah. only in certain markets. And that makes sense. I mean, I, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but the appetite for Congress to jump in and, and help a bunch of people with million dollar houses is pretty low. They're, they're about propping up the economy with, you know, the average price point and, and, and the average buyer. But but there, there's not that, that that will to do so with the, the higher end market. So we are seeing that. We're feeling that. It's probably going to continue. And in our market, Zach, is it 510 is? 510, 400, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so agents, when – when you and if you think about somebody having say 10% down that takes them to 5 you know 560 when you start to get into the close to the 600 price range in the Portland market is when you really start 
either needing to get creative, like Zach said, or you're going to start to see slowdowns. And we're and I and we're feeling that as you get above that six seven hundred price point. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that would explain why it's so fluid below that, and it's a little bit, you know, let's call it not so fluid above it. At there, the moment. There, there's another there's another phenomenon, you guys. I think that's going to impact the higher end market, and that is that the the household creation, um, you know, for from millennials in particular, right? So your people that are in your mid thirties right now, late thirties that are finally starting. We thought there'd be a big wave of millennial buyers a decade ago, and it just never happened. They stayed in their parents' basements, whatever the case may be. We all have a joke about it, but it's a real thing. And so many of them now are getting married, they're having kids, and that's going to drive the market, but they're not going to buy your move up homes. And so we're going to have a period of time where we're not going to see us. I'm telling you right now, we are not going to see a slowdown, in my opinion, in the real estate market in that lower band of, of, of a home. It's just there's way too much demand. I'm just I just do not yeah. see how it could possibly go away. However, I do think that you will see a pullback in your higher end homes because the move up buyers are those people that are buying those homes right now. So I think there's a long I think. If you're, a, if you know, I think the higher end market will be strong again. We'll see, we'll see that millennials move through those steps, and they might move quickly now that they're buying into the concept of home ownership is good. And I got to be honest with you guys, sheltering in place, having a home office like this, these are things that people are, are it's increasing. Uh, people are seeing more value in those things in a home. So larger homes, I think, will be be coming back in more demand. But it's going to lag a little bit because um, the, 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 the factors that are going to drive your mid-range price homes, which is these millennials being ready to buy, they're not ready to move up yet. But it's coming. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I agree with that. Hey, talk about the difference. Tony, you're, you're, you're a savvy guy and you've been through this before. What do you, how do you compare this to the Great Recession? I mean, is, is, it, it's, it's different. It's different, but it's the same. What, talk about that. What what do you? I'd love yeah, to I, I, I think that that fundamentally it's it's completely different, and, and the reason why is because uh, as it relates specifically to real estate, I think that real estate caused the last recession, and I think real estate can be what pulls us out of this one. Okay, so that I think for those of us in this industry, this is an awesome thing. Now. Obviously, there's similarities with what's happened in the downturn in the stock market and, and, and unemployment going to go up, but for completely different reasons, right? Um, this is you know, a virus that the government shut down our economy um, versus you know, an erosion of the market due to a basic a full-on collapse of the mortgage industry and real estate as a result. So what you're not going to see in this, in this one, in my well, time will tell, but I do not believe we're going to see the massive foreclosures that we saw in the last one that drove down um, home equities and drove down values and, and, and then these strategic foreclosures, people walked away from their homes because your average person that was a you know average worker, blue collar worker owned seven houses and they're like, I'm going to be a real estate mogul. And then it all started falling apart. And they're like, screw it, take them all. <laughs> You're not going to see that. That doesn't even exist today. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's going to be foreclosures. Let's be honest. There's going to be people that aren't able to make it through this that were um, entry level homeowners who have been affected their jobs and self-employed people. It's not, it's not like there's going to be none of that. It's just not going to be nearly at the scale 
that we saw last time. I also think, personally, it'll be a quicker recovery. I think it'll be a recovery that's more similar to what we saw in 9-11 than what we saw in, in 2008. Um, because you're going to see this, you know, America wants America to succeed. And so you're going to have this, you know, we had that with 9-11. We all banded together to make, you know, get our economy back, you know, go spend money, more stimulus, make it happen, like help people out, buy local, buy American. Like, I think you're going to see some of that. And so that's going to help hopefully push our recovery up quicker. The last recovery took a really long time. And I think this one will be different. And I think that as long as we can keep access to um, to the ability for people to borrow money, right? We can't have a liquidity crisis like we had last time. We have to give people access to capital and we have to give people access to equity in their homes. And we have to let people benefit from the low interest rates that are available so they can drive their costs down and they can buy consumer goods. Um, so I think, and I think that we know that, and I think that the steps are being taken to make sure that that happens. Um, and we can be the heroes this time, you guys, your real estate agents and your loan officers and the people who were villainized for the last crash can be a big part of counseling people through, uh, this recovery and don't be afraid. You know, we have to be smart, right? We can't just be order takers. Barbara says, Oh, I heard Rachel. Oh, I want to, you know, refinance. You go, great. Let me send you out and give you a rate. I think we need to be talking to people about, I mean, do you guys realize, I mean, people have like the average equity in someone's home is like 40% right now or something. If you're struggling financially and you have equity in your home, it's like having all this money untapped. And 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 like we have this mentality that, oh, I, I can't touch that money. It's like, yeah, but you're going to lose your house or go broke or, or whatever. We need to be smart about educating people about how to leverage what they have available to them. And that's where the mortgage industry needs to step up, in my opinion, during this recovery and talk more about, you know, cash out strategies and debt consolidation. Consumer debt is as high as it's ever been. And so is equity. Like we can do something about that. And it's going to give also people capacity to then spend more money and, and go out to dinner and revitalize our economy. And I think that's what we want. So I hope that that mentality grows our, our, our recovery faster. So that's my take on it. I mean, awesome, I awesome stuff. Jack, what do you see in the front lines as a, as a lender? Well, operations is huge right now. So when we talk about front lines and we talk about, you know, Tony at the very beginning talked about processing a loan and underwriting a loan and all the different people that are involved in closing a loan. You have some companies who just weren't prepared for all of a sudden overnight hey, everybody go work from home. You can't go to your office anymore, right? And so not only do you have capacity issues, all this business come, coming flooding in over the last few months. So they're, they're, they're understaffed and they're not ready. And at the same time, now you have all these people who weren't prepared to go home, right? So you take, you know, big producing underwriters and processors in any company. And if any of you have ever seen their workstation, They've got three huge monitors. They've got laptops. They've got printers and scanners. They've got juniors who are assisting them. And, you know, their their job is very intense, right? And there's a lot that goes into underwriting and closing a loan. And what we've seen, you know, some companies were very prepared to, hey, get what you need. You know, let's get you set up. If you need this, if you need that, take it from the office or we'll have it shipped to you. It'll be at your door tomorrow. 
and you can be up and running and just as, as, as uh, efficient as you were at the office. And then there are other companies who very clearly weren't prepared and it's having a huge impact on, you know, turn time. So, you know, you see some companies out there that are telling their clients, hey, you need to lock for 60 days or 90 days or 120 days. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot of that at, at Chase right now and some of the bigger companies where they just can't handle it, right? And they can't get through a loan. And so what does that mean to a client? Now, if you're a refinance client and you want a particular rate and you're comfortable with your lender and, and, and they can guarantee you a certain lock period, okay, so it takes 60 or 90 days to, to close your loan and you've got a job, so, so you're okay making the payments and saving your $300 or $400 a month is, is not a big deal that takes a few months, right? I get that, but on the flip side, you know, realtors have to be careful with who they're partnered with right now because on the purchase side of things, it's a huge issue, right? And so if you go, hey, we have these close dates. We talk, I talked about dominoes earlier. We've got close dates that we need to meet. So all these other pieces can come into play. And all of a sudden, a company can't get through alone in a certain efficient period of time because of you know not being prepared up front. Um, we're, I'm seeing and hearing a lot of that recently yeah. you know and so you know I, i'm blessed and lucky to work at a company where a lot of our employees were already remote so we have a lot of processors a lot of underwriters who they get to a certain point and they prove themselves enough they go work from home anyways in fact in my eyes i've had a processor that's worked from from her house for years and, and they're you know they're they're super efficient <laughs> they're available a lot they can work a lot of hours if they need to and they get through it. And so we were lucky to have our operations team already being in that boat and kind of already used to, familiar with it, having the things that they need. So I think that's super important right now um, versus, you know, groups of underwriters who, who, oh my gosh, now I'm on one little, you know, I'm on my laptop right now with you guys, right? I'm used to the two or three monitors behind it and, you know, plugging in. It makes a huge difference. It slows you way down when you're trying to maneuver all these different pieces of software and programs and that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's a big one right now. It's just turn time. To, to layer on challenges, I mean, that was one we hadn't talked about, but I mean, for the mortgage industry, just overnight to have to shift to home, the doctors, the funders, the lock desk. I mean, what percentage would you say, Tony, of your guys' operations is at home? Is it close to 100%? You mean currently or always? Yeah, currently, today. Yeah, I mean, there's probably our corporate office, which is like 80,000 square feet, has about 30 people in it. Yeah, yeah. And um, what, yeah, that's, I mean, that's... How many does it normally have, just for a comparison sake? 900. <laughs> so there you go, <laughs> right, yeah. Do <laughs> you think this will change the landscape um, permanently yeah. to some extent? Get this, get this. I we uh, we've been doing some surveys and pulling up some people, and this is just very preliminary, just an kind of initial kind of reach out to a handful of people about uh, that that are working from home. It looks like about over sixty percent said they would they would prefer to continue to work at home and not go. People that worked in the office before would prefer to stay at home. Yeah, look, I I'm think it's surprised. profound. It was one of the very first things that I said. Because I, I mean, I have a beautiful office here. I've worked from home for a long time. Um, then used to, man. I was suit and tie like every day in the office, and I was very anti uh, people working from home. And like Zach told you, you know, I mean, I run the region. Uh, we, we, we didn't. I didn't used to embrace that concept. But you know what I found over the last number of years? Like when we had to shift 
right? Because Kirkland was where the first breakout was. So my corporate office is like, what's going on? In, I got a ranch in Kirkland. They're like, what's going on in Kirkland? Like, people are dying. Like, is this crazy or what? And they're like, you know, and then King County was like, oh, people should maybe work from home. And, you know, HR is emailing me like, Tony, like, what do you have to say about this? I'm like, yeah, well, I'll put out an email and all my people work from home. You know, we've been doing it this way for a while. So it was a very smooth transition for us. But I got to be honest with you, Steve, to your, I think, I hope, I hope that it, that it, it does impact and I hope it stays because there are so many benefits of people working from home. The amount of time people spend in their cars going to a cubicle is freaking insanity. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for traffic, for people who actually have to get where they need to go. If you're a single parent and your kid is like sick at school, you can go to school, you pick them up, you put them on the couch, you give them, you know, uh, uh, some Sprite and a blanket and turn on like SpongeBob and go back to work, you know, versus, oh, I got to go take the day off because my kid's sick. There's so many benefits to this way of doing uh, doing business. In my opinion, I hope that it sticks. And I hope, not only, you know what else I hope sticks? I hope this sticks. I hope vi- Zoom calls. I hope virtual face-to-face. I've been using WebEx and, and, and video conferencing for a decade. And no one wants to turn their co- camera on. No one wants to get face-to-face like this. And this is forcing everyone to do it. And I'm like, yes. And I hope yeah. that it stays around because it's it's an awesome way. Like for me, I got a branch down in, down in Oregon. I live in Lake Stevens. If I want to jump into a sales meeting, if they're on Zoom, it's super easy. Otherwise, yeah. I got to like, it's a whole day to get down there, you know? Yeah. And so I hope that some of this stuff that we've been forced into doing sticks because it's good. It's good for businesses. It's good for communication. And um I'm not joking when I say that it's good for the environment. I mean, you guys, I mean, all these people driving around like a bunch of rats every day, like going to these boxes is crazy when we don't need to. Talk talk about an industry that can survive and thrive um, without needing to, you know, we're not a restaurant. You don't come in. We're not closed. We, you know, Steve, on your guys' end, you know, DocuSign is used for so many things. Um, we're virtually paperless now. I think we have one document every once in a while you need to print out, but you can take a photo and send it to us. So everything is also DocuSign and click. And until the very end, when you have your signing with the escrow company, which even they're getting creative, a lot of our loan docs now have turned to DocuSign. So, and this just happened in the last few months where, where the virus started. We said, hey, you can now send the docs to a client. They can DocuSign a handful of them here are the specific ones that a notary, you know, an escrow officer or a mobile notary actually needs to sign with a client. So, you know, realtors being able to do Zoom calls or virtual walkthroughs of a house or letting the, 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 the buyer or the seller walk through first without you there. And then I can do everything that I do with a client without ever actually having to sit down in front of them. It allows our industry and our business to keep chugging along, right? Versus what we've seen is a lot of this other stuff is just bound to a halt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've gone for a long time. We've taken a lot of people, uh, a lot of your guys' time, but man, this was probably some of the best content mortgage wise I think I've ever heard. So I applaud you guys for what you brought today because it was, it was definitely not self-promotion. It was how in the hell this business actually works right now. So thank you very much. Thanks Tucker. Thanks Tucker. And thanks Steve for having me on. And it was, uh, 
I, I now that you've been streaming in Masters, which I'm a member of, I've been I've been checking you out the last couple of weeks. So this is a great podcast, and uh, it's really refreshing to talk to real estate professionals who really understand the mortgage side of the business too. Like you can bring it, man. It's uh, it's a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 likewise, Tony. I mean, gosh, I I learned uh, you have a wealth of knowledge in the business, so we appreciate it. Um, and and I'll just and I'll just give you guys a shout out, um, and and I'll give you a shameless plug from me. Um, I I have a uh, <clears throat> Zach Zach isn't my number one preferred lender. I mean, I have one that that's that's one tier above him that that goes a little bit further than Zach. But I will tell you, in the last couple of weeks, I've sent a couple of loans to Zach that she couldn't get done um, right, and and I've been having a lot of conversations with Zach, and it, it definitely has jumped out at me that you guys are positioned and poised to do very well through this. Just and I think, like you said, Tony, I mean, you were pretty pretty transparent. You know, some of it, a little bit of his luck. I mean, there's there's one thing this downturn has taught me that I think no other downturn has. There's winners and losers, and it's not their doing, right? Like you could have been the most successful restaurant in Portland. You're a loser. And I'm sorry. It sucks for them. It sucks. And on the flip side, there's other industries. And I agree with you, Tony. We are a winning industry. Like home has never been more important and that people need mortgages to buy homes. And I think we're going, I think we're going to survive this the, the best as an industry. And I think we're going to pull a lot of the rest of the economy out with us as people not only are buying new homes that there'll be that but but as long, the, the, there's going to be plenty of people that like the home they already have and they, they, they want to go to home depot they want to do their yard they want to do this as, as they're as they're being stuck at their home so there will be all those ancillary components to home ownership that will help the economy but that said within within even our industry there are winners and, and there's going to be some losers um and it's not necessarily their fault some of it is just luck positioning and maybe things that were just in place that that are going to help them through that and I, I can see that with your guys's company um being that you're big servicers and so you're not having to pass through the overlays and and some of the uh, pricing challenges that that I'm, I'm seeing with a lot of other lenders so congratulations to you guys in that regards and thank you thank you for being on the show yeah thank, thank you guys great show guys well this is episode 115 signing off we streamed it successfully we'll see you guys uh hopefully again next week with another great one have a good one, yeah. guys. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.